Welcome to Hope Midtown, everyone. My name is Jordan. I get to serve here as our formation director. And uh, just, yeah, so great that you can make it today. Congratulations on making it despite getting that hour snatched away by, uh, by daylight savings. Let's, let's keep it real, though. It's a little less impressive than our 10 a.m. service, but you still made it. You still made it, and good on you. Uh, uh, I'm really excited to dive into our text today. Uh, just excited to explore this idea of God Jesus doing more with less. So as we, as we enter this text, would you, uh, would you pray with me and uh, prepare to receive what God might want to say? Jesus, ultimately what we need is you. You fill every appetite. You meet every need. Every longing finds its home in you. So Lord, today we, we need a word from you. A single word from you, Jesus, is better than a thousand sermons. So I pray that, that, that you would be elevated, your voice would be heard in the scriptures, in your word. So would you amplify whatever you want to be amplified today? And would you help me shut up when you need me to get out of the way? So today, Lord, let my words be few. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have been in this series in Lent. Uh, Lent is this kind of on-ramp to Easter, which is when we celebrate Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and then his victory over death in his resurrection. And in this season of Lent, as we're preparing to enter Easter, we've been looking at what we call these seven signs of Jesus, these miracles that John writes about, these miracles that point to God's character. They're signs, right? A sign is not the thing you end at. It's not the thing you, you go to. It's not the destination you end at. It's a sign that points to the ultimate destination, right? So these signs, these miracles are pointing us to something every time we read them. So we've gotten a chance to explore two miracles so far. First, happening in John 2, this miracle where Jesus turns water into wine at this wedding. Though, you know, what was at stake in this miracle, right? It was shame. It was financial. It was potentially legal, like this kind of, this couple that couldn't fulfill their obligation to their community by providing wine. But what I love that, that Drew pointed out when we did this, uh, did this passage in John 2 is that the miracle of turning water into wine was completely unnecessary. It was Jesus's unnecessary miracle. But see, I think the unnecessity un of that miracle, it actually points to the character. It's a sign to the character, the love, the kindness, and the mercy of God that Jesus is willing to show up, help, and be present to people even when we feel like it's unnecessary. Even in the mundane, ordinary parts of our life, Jesus wants to provide and show up. And more than just provide for our basic needs, what happened in John 2 was Jesus gave them the best wine, the best wine in the party. The, the people of this party were amazed at how good this wine was. And what's beautiful is that Jesus is not just trying to get us to a zero sum. He's actually trying to give us more than that. It's why later in the book of John, Jesus says, I have come to bring you life, but not just life, but life to the fullest. See, that is the nature and character of God, that, that Jesus wants to give us the fullest life. The, the experience of love and goodness and grace that actually fills us more than we could ever ask or imagine. And last week, we looked at John 5, where Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed. And this man 
for his whole life is despondent to his situation. He's hopeless because he has this idea that he needs to get into this pool, this miraculous pool where all this crazy, beautiful, magical stuff was happening. And he thinks, if I can just get in this pool, I will finally be healed. But he's become hopeless in his situation because he thinks that there's no one to help him and he has no means to get into the pool to be healed. Jesus shows up in the midst of this man's situation, in the midst of this man's despondency. And the man is fearful. He's saying that I don't have the means, I don't have the help to get to the place where the miracle will happen. And Jesus proves to this man that the pool is not the means, the help is not the means. Jesus himself is the means. He is the healing that the man had needed all along. That it wasn't the pool, it wasn't the process, but it was Jesus. And Jesus, it's a sign that again points us, not to ritual, not to practice, not to all these ideas of how we get healing, but point us to Jesus, the, the means, the healing itself. And now we come across this passage in John 6, where Jesus is being followed by this huge crowd, and he begins to ask this question, how are we going to feed these people? And it's this enormous, unexplainable need. And we get to see the reaction to this need, the reaction to this, this, this call to feed these people by these two disciples, Philip and Andrew. And, you know, in the other, in the other this miracle, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle that's actually recorded in every single gospel. We actually get this miracle four times. So there's something to, to pay attention to here because every single gospel, gospel author said we need to include this. And what's unique about what John writes in this passage is that he points out these two disciples, Philip and Andrew. And they're highlighted in John 6, but they've actually already been highlighted once in John 1. This is not their first rodeo being, being highlighted. Let's, let's look at how we were introduced to Philip and Andrew uh, in, in the Gospel of John. It says in John chapter 1, verses 40, Andrew, Simon, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Andrew is one of the first disciples to actually identify who Jesus is and what Jesus is here to do. See, the Messiah was this ancient Israelite idea that God would come and actually save and redeem his people. And Andrew is one of the first people to be able to figure out Jesus is this person we've been waiting for. He's one of the first people to go and tell other people about him. He goes to his brother and says, you need to come check this out. Philip does something very similar. See, Jesus uh, is le leaving for Galilee and he finds Philip. And Philip begins to follow him. And this is what it says in verse 45. Philip then goes and finds Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. See, both Philip and Andrew were these two disciples, some of the first followers of Jesus that have uniquely identified what Jesus has come to do. There's some of the people that have figured out, this is the miracle. God has come to intervene and save and redeem. We have found the Messiah. We have found the one we were waiting for. And what's even more beautiful about that is, this is before any miracle. This is before any miraculous sign of what, of what Jesus has done. They're just kind of watching, experiencing Jesus' teaching, Jesus' character. And they've already identified this. 
So it's, it's great that we actually get, we, we, we understand where Philip and Andrew are coming from, but we get to see their reaction, their response to this immediate great need that they are facing. So let's take a look at that. When, uh, when Philip is kind of addressed by this need, this is what happens. This is the question that Jesus asked Philip. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And let's notice what Philip answers. He says, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a single bite. You know, as I was studying this passage this week, uh, my brain was itchy. I don't know if you guys ever get that, where something gets kind of stuck in your brain, and it just kind of itches throughout the week, and you're like going back and back to it. And for me, the thing that was itching me about this passage was Jesus' question. Where shall we buy bread? It's not how shall we buy bread or what are we going to do to feed all these people? Where shall we buy bread? It's a where question, right? Uh, If we actually look at the Greek, it gets even more kind of specific. See, when we read that word buy, right, we think of transaction, of kind of uh, a transaction of currency for goods and services, right? We give someone cash, we give someone money, and they give us something in return. But what I love about this, there's a little bit of a a nuance there. See, the Greek that this is written to has the implication of purchase. But if you look at that word buy, it's this word agarazzo. And agarazzo is is a little different. It has the implication of purchase. It has the implication of buying and uh, transacting currency. But what it more literally means is, where shall we go to market? At what vendor do we go to? What I love about Jesus' question is it's first and foremost not about transaction, not about resources. It's about location. Jesus' question is a supply chain issue. It's all about where are we actually going to find the vendors to do this? Like, what, it, it's, not, it's not this question of how will we pay for this. And yet, Philip, in this moment, looks at this crowd. I'm, I'm not super good with big crowds, I don't think I know what 5,000 people look like. I don't think I know what that size of a a group of people kind of being together looks like. And what's crazy about this is that these 5,000 people, that 5,000 is just counting the men. So including women and children, we don't know how many people were there. It's it's kind of unfathomable. And I think Philip in this moment becomes overwhelmed by the daunting reality of this need. And he hears Jesus' where question but he answers it with a how. And I think we have probably experienced this in our own lives, where we are facing a daunting situation, the the piling up demands and needs of our life, of, of raising children, of our careers in the city, of even the most basic things like cleaning our kitchens and doing our taxes. And it just feels like I am overwhelmed by everything that needs to get done. I'm overwhelmed by the needs around me, by the needs of myself, and even the needs of others. I, I just, I can't imagine facing it and actually having those things fulfilled. And I think we hear Jesus' question of where are we going to get the bread? Where are we going to get the means? And we answer it with that how, but, you know, we answer it with this, how would we even go about paying for this? It's that, it's that sense of just being overwhelmed 
completely burdened by the reality we face. And it's a completely understandable perspective. And Andrew also has this perspective. If we actually look at Andrew's, Andrew's uh, response, this is what he says. He says, another of, in verse 8, it says, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. And he said, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Andrew also has a how question. He's also asking this question, how? But what I love about Andrew's response is that he actually answers Jesus' where question. He answers Jesus' where question with a bad answer, right? They're trying to feed 5,000 people, and he says, well, we have five. I also love that John says small barley loaves. Like, he's really trying to hone down. Like, this is not enough. We are, this is a bad situation. But Andrew, for some reason, is willing to answer Jesus' question honestly. And I think that's the invitation of this passage. I think that's the core tension of this passage, actually is that Jesus is often asking us this question of where are you going to get the means to, to face what you need to face? As you think about the needs in your life, where are, you going to, where are you going to go to solve these problems? But it's a where question. It's not a how. It's not, it's not a what work are you going to put into. It's actually like a location. And what we are invited to do is to take stock of what we have to take stock of what God might have given us, what we see around us, and to trust God with the rest of it. Even if we have logistic questions. I love logistics. I think it's important. I'm so grateful for all of our administrative staff here at Hope, uh, for Tina, for Dave. They, they do amazing work. They figure out hows all the time. But I think at the same time, there's this idea that we accept the reality that our what's sometimes don't meet the demands of the needs we face. And that actually we need to trust Jesus to do much with little. And let's see what Jesus does in response to this. In response to Andrew's here answer. It goes on to say in verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left, uh, left over by those who had eaten. This miracle is so much abundance it's more than we could ever expect, that, that it goes further than we could even expect. I, it's hard to even wrap your brains around, and as you think about, you know, Jesus breaking this bread, but the bread never running out. As Jesus is kind of like passing it along to people, passing it along to 5,000 people, and this bread doesn't run out. But it speaks to the nature and the willingness of God to come into our lives, to come into our real needs and to meet them even with the most meager of resources. That with Jesus, the issue is never about resources or what we have in stock. The issue is first and foremost, what market are we going to go to? Who are we going to go to to solve this? Last week, Drew preached about what do we put our security and faith in? And that's the crux of Jesus' question here. 
Where shall you go? And I think as we think about the needs in our lives, the places where we might be overwhelmed, I think we are invited to answer that question of where with Jesus. And we take what little we have, what little we might be able to muster up to to go and do it and allow Jesus to kind of handle the rest. For me, when I read this story, it it kind of brought me back to my childhood. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, my parents had this practice that we would do at night. Uh, And every time, most nights before we'd go to sleep, we would pray together, but we would also read scripture together. Uh, each night. We'd read scripture. And it was always a short passage. Maybe me and my brother would each read about like maybe six or seven verses. And uh, it was completely random. We would just like open up the text and just read whatever came up. And, uh, you know, we're young kids. So every now and then we'd read up to, we'd open up to something that's completely not age appropriate and just, and just be like, what's going on? And my parents are not pastors. They're not really in ministry in any way. Uh, they're both accountants. So, like, we'd open up to Song of Songs, this very romantic, and it gets more than romantic, uh, book of the Bible, and be like, what's going on here, Dad? And they'd be like, nothing. Uh, they just, but, like, what I loved about it, they wouldn't answer any questions. They wouldn't tell us anything about what's going on. But we would just kind of each day read a couple verses, six, seven verses, and be like, that's it. We would just read it, let it sit, and go on. And I think about those little deposits, those, those, that meager practice of just, let's read five verses. And I think about how God, throughout my life, has met me in Scripture. And how, this, how, how Scripture has become, for me, this, this pathway to experience God's love. This pathway to be close to Jesus. And it was this tiny, six-verse, unexplained kind of little practice that my parents put into, put into place for our family that actually impacted me in such a large way over the course of years. And I think we are invited to consider the own ways that our little meager deposits, the little things that we can put forward, might actually birth something much bigger than we can imagine. That the little things we do, the the conversations we have, the, the, the acts of compassion we have on other people, God is willing to do much more with it than we could ever ask or imagine. God, I think, is inviting us to consider what are our five loaves and two fish that God wants to do much with, that God wants to actually bring about much with. I want to move on to the third reaction we see in this passage. It's it's in the crowd. And here's how the crowd reacts after they get filled, after they get fed by this, this miracle. It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They have made now the same connection that Philip and Andrew did in John 1. They've named Jesus as this is God's deliverance in flesh. This is God's deliverance. We have found it. But here's, look what they want to do. They intended to come and make him king by force. Now, what's happened for the Israelites in the, last, in, in the context of this passage is that this period of the Israelite history is known as the Great Silence. It's been 400 years since the last time that, that a prophet has spoken for God and given them an, a direct interaction with God. And finally, after all this time, the people are experiencing God's love, experiencing God's words, experiencing God's power, They want 
to control it. They're so afraid of losing God's favor that Jesus is just kind of playing hopscotch into their lives, showing up, doing a miracle, but if he leaves, they're screwed. And I think we sometimes get this feeling too that that God only plays hopscotch in our lives, right? That he kind of like, he jumps in, he jumps out. And that he's not actually with us throughout the whole journey. His love doesn't actually extend into all of our lives. It's just these minor momentary moments. And it's this low view of the heart of God to love his people. I think it's a temptation we face each day when we think, that God isn't willing to show up, that God's provision and love is just random. But this sign is actually pointing to a greater thing that God has been doing in the world for years now. See, John 6 is actually pointing to something very different. See, there's, a, there's this uh, story in Exodus that John 6 is reminiscent of. See, John gives us a little taste of it in verse, in verse 4 of this passage. In verse 4 of John 6, it says, the Passover festival was near. Passover was a time when the people of Israel celebrated their exodus from uh, from Egypt. It was their emancipation from slavery in Egypt. And God essentially did mighty acts to bring them out of that place and to bring them into their promised land. And not only did it celebrate their kind of victory over Egypt, but it celebrated also God's kind of hand over their whole journey through the wilderness. And John 6 And Exodus 16 are almost exactly the same story. If you actually read both of them, they're almost exactly the same story. In Exodus 16, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. It's the same feeding that takes place. And the the analogies and connection to this passage go beyond even that. There's actually this part later, right immediately after this in John 6, when Jesus is walking on the water and brings his disciples through a storm. It says as soon as they got, he got on the boat with them, they, they experienced these winds and storms, and they were all afraid, but they immediately get safely to the shore. And similarly, you might be familiar with that story of God parting the Red Sea and bringing the Israelites through the waters out of harm's reach from the Egyptians. And this, this sign that God is doing, that sign that Jesus is doing, is pointing to this overarching theme of God's willingness to intervene, be present, and provide for his people. And this might just sound like some interesting biblical trivia, but I think this is important for us to understand that there is this larger narrative over our lives, over the needs we face and the realities that are before us, that God is always willing to provide and give. God has always been in the business of serving, loving, and providing. And the reason why John 6 is a new and better exodus is because the issue in the Old Testament wasn't that God wasn't loving or that God wasn't present. See, it's not that God became from present or came from absent to present. It's that an invisible God became visible. The ultimate miracle that this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 points to is the miracle of Jesus himself. That all of God's love, all of God's kindness, all of his mercy and truth are put into a singular person and has been given to us so that we can touch and experience and feel him near us. That 
all of God's salvation is a person. Every miracle that we experience in our lives, every time a need is met, it points to Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of our need. So as we think about the prayers that we are asking for, as the needs we're asking God to meet, I want us to consider the fact that Jesus is the culmination of every need we have. That Jesus is the nexus of every prayer we pray. He is the bread of life. Later in John 6, he makes the statement that I am the bread of life. As Eliana said, he is the thing that we ultimately hunger for. And we have to kind of attune our hunger to him. So even as we experience our needs, and even as our needs sometimes go unfulfilled, we are invited to realize that Jesus is the answer to every prayer we've ever prayed. It's not him fixing things. It's not that we have to control him or manipulate him to make him work on our behalf, but his presence with us, his willingness to love and and be near and sacrifice himself for us is the answer to everything we've ever asked for. There's been a, a saying in Revelation that has been kind of in my ear all day today. Uh, it's in Revelation 3, and it's where Jesus is speaking to a church, and what he says to that church is he refers to himself as the amen. He says, I am, he says, I am the amen, from the amen. He's saying that my name is the amen. It's a weird phrase, right? But what Jesus is saying is here is that Every prayer, you know, we say amen as a way to affirm every prayer that is prayed. We say it at the end of prayers because we're saying we agree, we long for this, we want this. So what it means for Jesus to be the amen is that he is the affirmation of every prayer that is ever prayed. And that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, prayers have been answered. Every longing finds its home in Jesus. So I want to invite the worship team up as we enter into a time of reflection. As we realize that abundance isn't necessarily found in other things that Jesus might might provide, but abundance is first and foremost found in Jesus. And I want us to think about a couple temptations that we might face as we ask God to intervene in our lives and provide for us. The first is like Philip. The first is like Philip where he says, we can uh, move on to that next slide, if possible. Uh, uh, one more. Got it. Nice. Jesus, thank you for providing. We, we, we might be tempted, like Philip, to experience the enormity of the needs around us and to ask, answer all of Jesus's where questions with how and what. So where in our lives are we tempted like Philip to believe that the need is too great and the resources are too scarce? Or we might be like the crowd where we experience God's love and favor and expression into our lives. It's kind of random, like a slot machine. But what we need to understand is that Jesus, God has this overwhelming narrative to redeem, restore, and meet us every single day And that every time a need is met, and even when a need is not met, that Jesus is revealing himself to us. That the answer to every prayer is a signpost that brings us back to Jesus. The amen of God. 
We don't need to control, manipulate, or, or, or arrain Jesus in to try to make him do what we want. Instead, we can trust him. So where are we tempted like the crowd to believe we must earn, control, or manipulate Jesus to receive his help and favor? And I think we are invited finally to think about what could we offer? What can we bring to Jesus? Where can we answer his where question with that here of this is what I can do? I can pray for a friend. I can give a small act of compassion and kindness. I can share a meal with someone in need. And to believe that somehow in that tiny, tiny contribution we might make, God is willing to multiply it more than we could ask or imagine. Where are we invited to act like Andrew and the boy and to offer what we have and trust Jesus to do much with little?